host on Survival Guide, a podcast for novices and masters alike. I am, of course, Dan. My co-host is, of course, Josh, Hello. Uh, the Earth Online developer. Good evening, everyone. I'll let Josh get a, I'll let Josh get a word in edgewise here. <laughs> One of these days we'll have timing. Uh, and on this podcast, we'll be discussing all things Earth on both magical and mechanical. Today is chronological and combatical and whatever. I was going to keep going. You did say you were going to try and keep that riff going as long as you could. I'm going to try. Uh, and as long as I find it funny, I don't care what anybody else thinks. Um, but please, by all means, we actually have a uh, listener email to get to today, first thing. And after yes. that, um, actually before that, we'd like to remind everybody, if you possibly can, uh, we know we've got more than two listeners. We've only had three emails so far. Uh, but by all means, please get a hold of us and uh, contact us at edsgpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, uh, like and subscribe and everything else to make the algorithms work on your favorite podcast platform. But otherwise, Josh, we yes, have an email. We do. Uh, we got a, an email from uh, Matt, who sent one of the emails that we had in a previous episode. Um, and uh, Thank you, Matt. So we, we appreciate that. Um, it says, hello, guys. I liked very much the last episode, which thank you for that. We appreciate it. Uh, which got me thinking yes. about questions that I have. And he has two questions. Uh, one, can you do an episode on the current political climate of Barsave? I know the Iopos book, which is forthcoming, uh, should have some of it, but I'm not sure how much it will. Having some more information about the aftermath on page 38 and 39 of the GM guide would be great. I'm currently running a game based in Barter Town, so I just want to find out what has changed. So that is something that we will probably talk about when we get a little bit further along in the timeline, um, mm -hmm. which will be a, a couple of episodes. We've got some more timeline advancement stuff we're going to talk about tonight. And when we get to um, the end of the, the timeline, uh, we will sort of talk about the current situation. And also... Um, as we start getting into geographical stuff where we are looking at different areas, um, we'll probably bring up what is going on currently in them as of the time of sort of fourth edition status, or if there's a book related to them, talk about the stuff in there. So, so it, it is in the meantime, it, put your campaign on hold for like five or six <laughs> weeks. Kidding. <laughs> um, you know, or you can, you can just make stuff up. Um, anything that, that is not in a book thus far is largely fair game. All of the stuff that I wanted to point out in terms of differences is in the GM guide. Um, but we'll, you know, we can, we'll talk about that more later. Uh, the other question he had too, Josh, why did you change something from third and why did you keep some? What you said about the Windling Karma die got me thinking of that question. And that is a, a good question. Um, and that is something that as we talk about different mechanical stuff or setting based stuff as we go along, um, I will sort of address those as they become relevant. It's it's very difficult um, to sort of do a comprehensive, oh, just talking about all the changes without coming across them in the course of, of That's working on this. That's a pretty broad brush otherwise. Yeah. So I mean, we I, could I can we imagine could, you... Like I'm, I'm not even sure. Hours on of, not even yeah, nail everything down. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not even 100% <laughs> sure. I, I would basically like needing to go through stuff and say, oh yeah, here's this. Um, most as a general consideration, most of the changes that were made um, were to address problems or um, more likely to try and streamline or simplify play to a certain extent. That was not always the case. Like, for example, the, the rules changes on poisons are a little bit more complicated than they were previously. Um, but just generally, 
you know, that's that's what I was looking looking towards. Um, I could we could do a whole show just on Forge Blade, uh, a.k.a. Forge Weapon <laughs> and all of the changes that it has gone through over the, the course of the editions. And we may talk about that when we get to Weaponsmiths, um, you know, and sort of or explain talents. why the various changes were made during the editions and why it ended up going back a lot more like the way it originally was. Um, Fair. But yeah, I mean, you know, good questions. We're glad that you uh, you enjoy the episodes. And uh, those are things that rather than focusing on like, oh, we'll do a show focused on why changes were, that'll be something that gets discussed as the various um, stuff comes up. If somebody has a specific question about like, why did you change X? Then, you know, certainly feel free to, to ask that question. And, um, you know, that is a lot easier to address than, you know, why did you change some <laughs> things and keep others? Well, because... You know, because it needs to be done. <laughs> um, yeah, because I felt like it. Yeah. So and yeah, and by all means, lay everything on Josh's feet. He's not the only person who made some changes. So yeah, I mean, you know, there there were there were changes throughout the uh, throughout the you know entire development of the line and lessons learned and things that I contributed to as changes in earlier editions that I reverted in later ones because I am older and have less tolerance for some things. <laughs> Uh, beef and cuz this is why. So yeah, we're going to go with that. Uh, cool. So by all means, Matthew, yeah. thank you for your email. Uh, stay tuned for more, uh, is not just a way to get you to listen and continue to listen. We really mean that we'll get to it in time. We promise. And on behalf of all the other listeners, I will ask a lot of questions of Josh on your behalf. So by all means, send more questions because I don't mind asking. Uh, so that leads us to the timeline. And where we left off was just as everybody closed their doors and the scourge was beginning. Yes. Right? Right. We had sort of wrapped up, I think, with um, the uh sort of the 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 final days leading up to the scourge and the yes. the Theron empire. Um, yeah, so we had it down as as the long night begins now, so roughly 1008 the year of Thrall or right. uh 565 the year of Thera, take your pick. Uh but since we're all pretty much going by the Thera, the Thrallic calendar mm-hmm. uh 1008. Uh and they didn't really come out from the surface for like 401 years or something like that. So uh yeah, this is where the dwarves created the book of tomorrow. Everybody uh, was in their own little cares, little cares. Sorry, big cares. Um, well, there were some little ones. And, yeah, there were some little ones. Probably windlings, uh, but mostly, uh, I can't even say racial specific because a lot of them were probably blended. Uh, yeah. Many races involved, mm-hmm. and <clears throat> you know, uh, outside yeah. of outside of like the um, the the elven court at Wormwood, which we will talk about here, um, and. Yeah. Um, you know, like many of the Tuscrang homes, um, the, the Tuscrang major population centers had were largely Tuscrang based because a lot of them were underwater, um, yeah. stuff like that. Um, the the Book of Tomorrow, which Dan mentioned, is um, a really neat conceit setting wise. Um, the 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 Citadel at, at Thera closed sort of before a lot of other places did, um, potentially because of the high magic that was there. It could have uh, attracted a lot of attention from the horrors beforehand. And so there was a period of time where, you know, Thera had sealed itself off and was no longer in communication, but a lot of other places were still open. Um, Thrall uh, actually 
kept themselves open as long as they possibly could to allow for refugees and late arrivals um, to to get safely into the kingdom. Um, but the Book of Tomorrow was something that was commissioned by Thrall uh, to basically provide a uh, something to help the people in the cares to to look forward. Um, you know, yeah, where, to where rebuild. Yeah, rebuild after they came out. Right. Um, you know, when you're talking about 400 years, I mean, that's that's multiple generations, even if you're talking sort of the longer lived elves. Um, but, you know, with with people, I mean, 400 years, if we think about that, it's, you know, 2010. We're talking about the the amount of time here going back to, you know, before the, you know, right around the, dis, um, you know, right around the founding of Jamestown here in the U.S. Yes. Like that's the time scale that we're talking about, like from today to the first permanent uh, uh, English colony in the Americas. Um, like that's, yeah, uh, that's a rocks. What? 1607, 1620, uh, somewhere in there. 16, 1620 was the, was 1620 Jamestown or was that the landing at Plymouth Rock? I can never remember. I think it was, but, I think it was a landing, but my history, hey, guess what? 400 years ago, I wasn't there. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, part that's, of the, that's a, what that's we're a, talking about. That's a really, I mean, that's a, that's a really long chunk of time and the number of generations mm -hmm. and so forth that, that go on there. And where we've got sealed environments and, you know, not only like the Therans kind of did a lot of work with the rights of protection and passage to, um, you know, have it so that people could survive the scourge. They didn't really do anything to plan for the time after. Um, now, yes. it, it could be this isn't really in the book at all, but it could be argued that maybe the reason they did that was so that a lot of the places would end up be being weaker and whatnot and no longer and not put up much of a fight if, you know, when the Therans returned after the scourge. Mm -hmm. uh, that is that is one possibility. But the the dwarves of Thrall commissioned a book and distributed it to as many places as they could where it included, um, you know, stories and legends and information about the surface world and how to, um, like, do traditional farming as opposed to the magical stuff that was taking place in the cares and all sorts of other, you know, animal husbandry and all sorts of things that, that is sort of important knowledge. Um, and also included in it a, a um, primer and um, alphabet and stuff on the Dwarven language, which goes, uh, again, kind of really nice setting conceit as here's a reason why everybody speaks Throlic, speaks the Dwarven language, because mm -hmm. the Dwarves made an effort during this long period of time to kind of build, in a sense, a unified culture um, amongst a wide variety of people um, who had kind of been separate before then. And even though they continued to be separate, when that is the major source of information and whatnot, um, it becomes very important and helps build a, a foundation. Um, so they you know, commissioned the book, got it out to as many places as they could beforehand, um, and then uh, sealed their gates. Yeah, the year 1050, they finally sealed their gates in Thrall. Because they were, as you said, letting in refugees and everybody else who could possibly make it just because. Yeah, that was about, it was about 50 years after Thera sealed theirs. So there was a, you know, yeah. a, a, you know, a good chunk of time, almost a, you know, almost a sort of uh, human lifetime. Well, not quite, but. Yeah, to, to, a whole generation, essentially. Yeah, um, to, yeah. to do that. So 
And then, uh, so while everybody was underground, the king, Varelis II at the time, uh, took a while, but they finally came up with the council compact in the year 1270 is when it was finalized. Mm -hmm. So it took them 120 years? Yeah, 120 yeah. years. No, sorry, 220 yeah, years. Yeah, two, 250 to 1270. 20, 220 years to write a legal document. Wow. Um, but it laid out individual rights, property rights, and the role of law, and uh, figured out that in the council compact, slavery should be outlawed because it was... Uh, the conclusion was drawn that the body is the property of the soul that inhabits it, and involuntary servitude grants control of the body to the slave owner. So, in, it says, in essence, the kingdom of Thrall, in its own little care, uh, or own large care, in 1270, decided to outlaw slavery. Yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, like, proper, it's an interesting sort of, that they kind of take a property rights-based approach to outlawing slavery, um, mm -hmm. you know, which, which is to say that that um you know there there's a like where where a a slave owner or the or the slave holding culture that that was thera and sort of the dominant culture prior to the scourge looked at slaves themselves as property and so the mm -hmm. counter argument that ended up being come up with by the the philosophers and scholars of thrall was well okay if you're going to view them as property who actually owns that body and well, then mm -hmm. we're going to, the spirit owns the body. And if you're using the body without consent or without compensation, then you are yeah. therefore stealing the body from its rightful owner um, and things like that. So it's, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, approach and it does a lot to um, not that it needed a, like a lot of work, I don't think, but it definitely does a lot to set up the sort of setting conceit of the Therans generally being viewed as bad guys because they keep slaves and the kingdom of Thrall and, you know, Barsaven broadly sort of afterwards has denied that um, without mm -hmm. the um, troublesome racial stuff that it goes along with that here in our present day society. <laughs> um, you know, I, I uh, so, but it, it's, you know, but it, that it takes a, a, a moral, it, it's a moral stance, but it is one that is couched in argument terms that are difficult to, in some respects, maybe difficult to gainsay. I mean, mm -hmm. you can, and the Therans do it all the time, but, yep. um, well, some Therans do it all the time, but, uh, just in, in general, it's, it's an interesting approach. Um, and you know, basically that the sort of that is a an indication. It's not the only thing that was done, but it is an indication of how throughout the scourge, you know, the the dwarfs of Thrall were not just sitting on their butts, like, you know, twiddling their thumbs. They were actively waiting, working yeah. towards trying to figure out, OK, well, when, when this is over, you know, when we get through this. Again, like looking at that hopeful post-apocalypse kind of situation. When we get through this, what is the kind of world that we want to build in the aftermath? And making those decisions and laying the philosophical foundation for it ahead of time. And well enough ahead of time, you know, we're talking like it, it was sort of revealed in 1270, which is about halfway through the scourge, roughly speaking. Mm -hmm. There is enough yeah. time after that is established within Thrall for that to become the cultural norm like it's not like yes. they opened the cares and then sort of dropped this new on everybody 
for for the kingdom, it's something that had in large part um, sort of become internalized, even if there are factions within Thrall that, you know, are not crazy about some of the things that that were decided or laid down in that. Yeah. And there's roughly, as you said, 200 years left. And so that's plenty of time, three, four or five generations ish Mm -hmm. to get used to the new norm of this is no longer a practice. Right. And so they had generations to imbue that to the society as a whole. So, uh, like I said, that was a very cool thing for the setting conceit. Um, So about 400 years after the beginning of the scourge, in the year 1415, um, the elemental ball of true earth stopped uh, falling into the dish of true water and stayed there about an inch above and stabilized. Yes. And I always thought that was a really cool, magical way to tell time for the scourge to be over with. Um, I always thought that was a neat thing because clocks, candles, no sundial, you're all underground. Right. So how would they do it? And then they relied on the elements and true earth and true uh, water to get that done. So I thought that was a very cool thing to get done. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, you know, because that's something that is at least in theory, based on the level of magic. If the scourge and the, the presence of the horrors is something that's, um, you know, based on, like, there can only come through when the magic is at a certain level, you yeah. have something magical that kind of measures what that level is at, and when it's down below a certain point, then you know that, uh, that it's not. Now, one of the unanswered mysteries of Earth Dawn is why did it stop dropping? Um, We're not going to tell you here. We're not going to tell you here. (laughs) um, You know, there there are enough clues in old material that that the people who have dug into it have a pretty good idea. Um, But yeah, like that's one of the things, at least certainly in in the core book, is like, you know, magic dropped and stabilized and has been stable now for 150 years with no mm-hmm. indication that, that it's dropping further and, you know... Or what, increasing. Or, or increasing. Um, and, and what does that mean in the grand scheme of things? Yeah, so if you want to go read all the old source material, challenge accepted, go for it. Uh, I'm or, if, not or if you want to, you know, hit me up on... <laughs> you want to send, send an email or, or yeah, you know, hit up means, the, the company Discord or stuff, I can uh, probably have it pried out of me. Yeah, Josh will maybe just say yes or no to the certain uh, emailer, or 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 I that. or I could use the <laughs> or I could use the great developer response to people who put forward ideas, which is, huh, that's a really interesting idea. <laughs> Tell or, me more. Or, right or that or that's a good question. Yeah, love that. <laughs> uh, so in the meantime, what happens also during the the long night here in. This, during the scourge, is uh, King Varulus the first dies at two hundred and seventy, and Varulus second takes up the, the throne. The throne, yeah. And then also he dies uh, in thirteen seventy three. So just twenty five, thirty years before the the doors open, yeah, uh, for the first search party. And so King Varulus the third. So King Varulus the first saw the outside, and King Varulus the third saw the outside. King Varulus the second never saw the outside. Never did. No. And and if you look at it, the the Throlic kings during the scourge um, all have much longer lifespans than is normal for dwarfs, um, mm-hmm. according to the racial information. Um, yes. Dwarfs don't typically live that much longer than 
sort of baseline humans. You know, about a hundred years is sort of the the typical lifespan. Um, but but Valerius the first died at almost three hundred. Valerius the second died at, at two hundred and fifty eight. Um, Varolus mm-hmm. III took the throne in 1373 and was alive until he was killed in the early 1500s. So he was also yeah. like of well-advanced age. And um, the reason for that is not a secret. Um, Varolus the I uh, went to visit the great dragon Icewing who lives atop the Thrall Mountains and was mm-hmm. um, gifted... Uh, potions that would greatly extend the life of himself and his heirs. The idea being to, by having a long-lived monarch, would promote a much more stable society um, and prevent the possibility, uh, reduce the possibility, not necessarily prevent it, but reduce the possibility of civil war or some other kind of thing where, um, you know, there could be some, some problems with Thrall. Um, the drawback of those potions is that it greatly reduced the fertility of the uh, royal family uh, to the mm-hmm. point that Varulus III um, only had one heir, and the royal family was very, very small, um, uh, sort of post-scourge and in the, the time after that, um, which is kind of a bad thing in, in dwarf culture, and we'll talk about that a bit more when we get to dwarfs, but that basically yeah. there was one heir, and we'll talk about the consequences of that in another timeline episode, because that's, you know, that's about 150 years off from where we're talking about right now. Exactly. Um, uh, and yeah, we've got like two more segments of the timeline to get through on other episodes. Right. So stay tuned. Um, yeah. So other than that, the gates of Thrall finally opened in the summer of summer. I love the fact that it's summer, uh, 1420 after the first expedition went out in 1412 and got crushed. And then they did one every year after that. Well, 1412, until, 1412 actually was the first expedition that did not get, killed within, oh sorry right yeah 1409 was the first expeditions 1412 yep. was the first one that actually succeeded where the party came back with news that um it was you know potentially safe um, safer safer <laughs> and then they set forth on the earth dawn which was the ship after which the game is named um yes and uh, it it went on two expeditions and vanished on it the third? It went on one that was successful, and well, then it, it, went, it on, went on a second one and disappeared. It disappeared during the second one. Okay, yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, it, its fate is, uh, as yet, um, unknown. Which is strange, because the Earth went on two expeditions, and the, most of the game is based on the rule of three. So, there's a... I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Um, you know, <laughs> that, that there, are, there are rumors and stories of it appearing in the skies from time to time. Um, and, uh, you know, but, but as of right now, officially speaking, its fate is, uh, undetermined. And I think unless I can, unless we can come up with something really compelling or interesting for it, we may just leave that as an open mystery for people to decide what to do with in their own games. I like that idea because <clears throat> once upon a time I was playing a game with a really big bad guy and, if you give the great big bad guy stats, then there's a way to defeat him, mm-hmm. him or her. If you don't ever stat that guy, <laughs> the numbers will never succeed. Yeah. And so if you never have a mystery solved, it's fun to have that always out there that it could eventually pop in on your group or in your campaign or something like that. So you get to do whatever you want with the earth on that way. 
Yeah, and and I I certainly understand the desire for some of the um, for some of the the more hardcore lore heads to want to know what happens and to have all of the details filled in. And I appreciate that as someone who is sort of one of those, at least peripherally. But I also yep. recognize the value in having blank spaces on the map. Um, and that includes, you know, mysteries that we just won't answer. Um, and to to allow game masters to come up with their own ideas to tie into those things. Um, and, and, you know, the, at least as of right now, the fate of the earth dawn is one of those much like there is very, very little information that has been revealed about uh, the kingdom of Landis. Um, Mm -hmm. and even less about Ustrecht, which was the, the troll kingdom that was sort of contemporaneous with Carafod. Um, and, and that those areas have not had a lot of detail about them, which makes them really great areas for a GM maybe to develop and flesh out on their own. Um, there is a lot of yeah. empty space on the map, um, but it's nice to also have some areas that maybe just have a little bit of labels. You always want to have an area when you're talking about fantasy gaming, at least. I, I think it's important and useful to have areas on the map or at the edges of the map where you, all you have is here, there be dragons. You know, yeah. or that we and don't have much information, um, you know, about them to allow people to 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 fill in blanks and. You know, they, they might be filled in later. They might serve as inspiration for later stuff or or not. Um, yeah. But don't feel like you can't use something that you have an idea about because we haven't detailed it more. Um, because, you know, it might take us a lot longer to get to it. And in the meantime, you can, you know, do cool stuff. So, yeah. And, and part of the basis of Earthdawn is, ex, is exploration because something may not have been fully explored in the last hundred and some odd years that we've yeah. been out. So... And, and go explore it. You know, we, we really want people to to make the game their own in a sense. And it is very difficult to do that if we like have decided what's going on with something, but are very cagey about it and hiding like the secrets from people. And then when we reveal it, uh, the secrets turn out to be kind of like not great, um, <laughs> which is which is a problem with some of the, the heavier meta plot stuff from from the same era in the 90s. Um, yes, and I, I don't think while there was a developing storyline for Earth Dawn, I, I think it was one of the better examples of that uh, in terms of all of the products that they came out. So we're trying to, yeah. you know, do do more of the same. My my best real world example, I can't say real world. My best movie example of this is if you watch the movie Ronin with Robert De Niro, um, they're chasing this case, the suitcase, this briefcase across half of Europe. And the filmmakers decided that they would never reveal what was in the case because it's not going to be as cool as you ever would think it would be. And so you're going to get lost on the storyline going, well, what's in the case? It can't be that important. It has to be that important. They're chasing after it. And so by or, not knowing what's in the case ever, you focus on the story well, yeah, of yeah, who's I mean, doing the, what and why. Yeah. I mean, it's like the case, the case in Pulp Fiction works the same way. They never show yeah. what's inside. They just open it up at one point. You kind of see a glow, whether that is mm-hmm. an actual glow or merely a metaphorical one, given the way that Tarantino does things. You never yes. really know. Um, but like the the case in both of those is kind of it's just a MacGuffin. It's the reason why things are happening. And beyond yeah. that, you don't need to you don't need to you know don't the need details. To, you don't need to know. Yeah. yeah. So no, it's it's, go from there. it's cool. Yeah. So there were so, so there were. So, so question for you. There were two other things that happened during the scourge. Oh God. That we need to talk about <laughs> briefly. 
Yes. We, we, we focused mainly on Thrall and what was going on with Thrall and the stuff that they did. But there were two other mm-hmm. kind of significant events that happened during the Scourge that I kind of thought right. that, that we should talk about. Sorry about that. I think one of them is the Patrol of Thorns with the Elves. Yes, that is one. There's one. Yeah. And I didn't quite see the note on the second one, but I just remembered that one off the top of my head. Okay, so, 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 so what... Enlighten us about the, the ritual of thorns. <laughs> I'll do what I can. My memory is still fuzzy, as it always is. Um, I remember that the wards on... So they had... Queen Alachia had gone around and said that they didn't need the rights of protection and passage. Their elementalists were doing just fine. Thank you very much. And they strengthened their forest and used true wood to create their barrier and grow their trees and that was their outside but as we all know wood unless it's petrified is not as strong as stone and so those wards eventually begin to break down and somebody nobody quite knows who uh figured out that when the horrors did breach they left alone anybody who was already in pain and so thus began the well if we hurt ourselves then we don't feed the horrors and they will leave us alone. And so Alachia decreed at that point that anybody who was in the Bloodwood needed to go through the Ritual of Thorns to keep and protect the longevity of the elven race. Yes. How did I do? That's, that's pretty good. What, what exactly <laughs> did, does the Ritual of Thorns do? It um, causes thorns, spiky little things, uh, to grow from inside your body probably uh, from your bones itself through your flesh, through your skin and out of your skin by about an inch or two inches, depending upon how well you like, how well you like that uh, transformation. Um, and even some of the more grotesque ones actually continue to drip blood every once in a while. Those are fun. Well, not, um, not just the grotesque ones, all of them. <laughs> yes. Sorry. Because um, be- yeah, but they go but, for it. Yeah. They, they all, they all dripped blood constantly. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, which is sort why elves of, don't wear white. Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> there is a much more detailed sort of description of what was going on with this in um, both the original first edition Bloodwood book and the more mm-hmm. recent Elven Nations, which adapts a lot of the uh, Bloodwood material um, to, to fourth edition. But historically, you know, setting wise, they're, they're pretty much the same. Um, the, uh, and yeah, I mean, you, you, you more or less nailed it, or you sort of more or less nailed the, the public story of. Yes. Uh, what was going on with with those there? Um, the idea being that the thorns growing out and dripping blood cause constant pain, um, and so therefore, um, the more powerful horrors, the ones that are more dangerous, um, generally need to apparently create the negative feelings they feed on themselves, and so don't have as much of a uh, of an interest in the 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 blood elves. Um, and so the weaker ones who are largely there to just eat eat stuff are able to be driven off. The the secret uh, of this, and this gets mentioned <laughs> in the GM's guide in in the the setting section of the GM's guide, is mm-hmm. that um, the other aspect of the ritual of thorns, which is the not publicly known, is that it was also basically renaming the wood and altering its pattern so that the pattern of the wood itself would be a ward against horrors. And the reason and the reason that the thorns from the elves continue to drip blood is to continue to power that enchantment. Which is a very, very cool little tidbit. for Setting. I mean, there's and there's (laughs) there's there's more to it. The the like. 
even people who have never played Earth Dawn but who have encountered it, like mm-hmm. the Blood Elves are like memorable, honestly. Yes. And we will talk more about we'll have to do like maybe a whole episode on them. But but the Blood Elves are like really a really an interesting take on the the whole thing. Like the whole like they do things with elves that are that, like Earthdon did something with elves that was different in a in a truly remarkable way. Um, yeah, like the blood elves are not. Oh, here's Earthdon's version of the drow. Like they're say, it's a very yeah. yeah, it's it's a very different <laughs> like there's there's this whole thing with the elves and the ones that were not at the wood and so don't have the ritual and the blood mm-hmm. elves and like okay they survive but what was the cost and yes. like there is so like I can go on about the uh, the Alakia and the blood elves for hours I just like and, and the and the disdain from elves who are not have not gone through the ritual of thorns who look upon those who, who did and just there's something yeah. there that's just like, like I don't like know what to basically, make of you, but I like, don't like, like what it was, and so forth. And, you know, what was the center of elven culture? The thing that defined what it was to be an elf was mm-hmm. so, I don't want it. Like the, the word irrevocably doesn't like it applies in a sense mm-hmm. because it changed it so dramatically that the elves outside the wood no longer really know what it means and there's this whole thing about like well with the ritual and i I, like go and like get the elven nations (laughs) books and read because there's a lot of discussion in there about like what it means and why alakia even now a hundred years after the scourge is still requiring that the ritual be performed and there's like all sorts of it gets sort of alluded to in the gm guide the fourth edition gm guide but the, the blood elves are, are amazing. They they really yes. are, and just yeah. So yeah, so that's so if anyone says yeah. So if anyone says drow drow elves are better in D anD D. Yeah, I'll see your drow elves, and I'll raise you the blood elves, and we'll go to blows. Yeah, because so, I think um, the blood elves absolutely the, my before. It's, it's just drow. I mean you know I I just don't want to cool compare their different things, but it again as a like response to the second edition D anD D a D anD D thing, a lot of mm-hmm. other fantasy games always tried to kind of do their own take on quote unquote dark elves that always like eh, whatever but the the blood elves are not really dark elves but like there is that anyway it's all just like it's super creepy and has like the horror aspect and the tragedy and it's just it's amazing and they're they are they are iconic in a, a truly like unique earth dawn way yes so so uh, so that's that and all the artwork in the books forever for the for the Blood Elves has just been fantastic. So yeah, they've always had yeah. the right artists for those. The 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 other the other event is this the, the passions being driven mad. Um, yeah that that actually wasn't what I was thinking of though. The other one Fair. was Parlength. Right. Sorry. <laughs> so um, obvious we missed it because it was a box set once upon a time. But yes. Um, yeah. The other part of Parlength because I did read the Longing Ring trilogy many many years ago, um, but that was when. Because other people had ideas about how to survive the scourge and right. how it was the, best it was to protect the, themselves. Par, Parlength was the Theron capital before the scourge. Yes, and, and what they decided to do instead was just when the balance is tipped to take their city, it's in, in its entirety, city population and everything around it, and just pop that to a little 
pocket dimension of astral space uh, and kind of switch places with the horrors because the horrors were coming here. They would go there and do the whole um, like baseball pickle. Uh, you didn't catch me. I'm over here now yeah. and wait it out. But mm-hmm. then as part of that, so there was there was to, a, yes. Let's see. No, go ahead. You were going to as part of that. I was gonna say, they decided to erase from existence and everybody's memories all of the existence of Parlength. So nobody would, re- would remember that Parlength even existed for the horrors to find out where it could possibly be. So mm-hmm. the ultimate uh, presto changeo switcheroo, Parlength disappeared and disappeared from everybody's memory and disappeared from every book, every map, period. Yeah, ex- except for a few very obscure references that basically and led to clues. clues to how to bring it back. Yes. The idea, of and course, the idea, of course, was that the Therans living in Parlength would bring it back themselves once um, the, the scourge was over. That was yes. that was part of the original plan. Um, uh, a little hubris there. Yeah, um, there was there That's was always. one problem. And that is that when they performed the ritual to remove the city into its pocket space, um, there were already horrors that had infiltrated the city. Yeah. They kind of piggybacked on that one. They said, oh, oh, you think you will? Oh, no, you won't. Yeah. Well, well it, and, and it wasn't that the horrors like knew what they were going to do. The horrors were just doing what they do, which was infiltrating the city. And then yeah. when they discovered what had happened and that they were trapped in the city for the duration of the scourge, they were not happy. And so extended the torment of the people within it. Um, for, for, you know, a, a long period of time. Um, yeah. Cause if you're a horror and you figure out that you're going to have this nice bountiful 12 course meal for the next 400 years, and then you end up in the city where you're going to have like an appetizer for 400 years, you'd be a little upset too. Yeah. Um, and so in the, in the aftermath of the scourge, um, there was one of the art, there was a, a magical artifact called the longing ring of which there was a novel about it and the novel basically describes the the rediscovery of and return of the city of parlanth um mm-hmm. but basically parlanth it was when it was discovered was empty that is to say well no it wasn't empty it was like none of the people that had gone into the city originally had survived all that were left were horrors and horror constructs and undead Yes. Um, and a lot of the horrors sort of had actually gone into semi-hibernation because they had no longer had any kind of, you know, food source. Mm-hmm. Um, but when the city returned, then they kind of woke back up and uh, some of them and whatever. But, yes. but Parlength is basically a, like, it's the, to, to draw a parallel, it is perhaps like the Undermountain of Earthdawn. Uh, Undermountain being the massive dungeon that exists under the city of Waterdeep in the Forgotten Realms. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Parlanth is just basically a massive ruined city full of monsters and treasure and stuff. And there's a little um, outpost, a uh, safe outpost on the corner of the city that's been established. Um, but it is, you know, just a big, massive ruined city. Uh, with all of the awesomeness that that goes along with it, my my and the box, the original box set, the Parlanth box set is amazing. Has some phenomenal handouts with it. Um, Agreed. Uh, there there are two things about Parlanth that that stand out, and then we'll kind of wrap this up, at least to me. One is the description how there's the the city wall, right? The wall that basically encompassed the city and was the the bricks of which were 
the foundation of the enchantment that moved it to the other plane. Yes. And there is a space between where the wall was, because the wall was constructed for the purpose of the ritual, and where mm-hmm. the border of the city actually was. It's a, a space of, you know, a, a few dozen yards or so. And yes. there's a description in the box set of that area, which more or less goes around the entire perimeter of the city, is mm-hmm. largely just filled with bones. <laughs> like... You know, the, the the scenes that they show of the future in the Terminator movies where like you usually yes. have like all of the, the skulls and stuff and then the robot mm-hmm. like steps on it. And like, oh, yeah, that's totally. the kind of like that's the kind of area that is the, the perimeter of of par length. Um, yeah, I always use that to to great effect when people arrive there the first time. The other mm-hmm. one is one of the handouts in the par length box set that always stuck with me. And that is it is a fragment of a journal or something that was um or is basically uh a journal for lack of a better term that was recorded on a wall in in a part of the city yes it was painted on Mm -hmm. the wall you probably know the one i'm talking about now the great the great map wall yes no not the great map wall this is something else entirely this is basically like in in a room in one and in a part of the the ruins basically Mm -hmm. like it's like we have been in here for 13 days and like it's basically like a journal a chronicle of what's been going on and it gets to the end and like the 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 person who is writing it is like i can't let the horror who has trapped us see that i'm doing this and i've got to blah 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 and Mm -hmm. like at one point about two third about two thirds or three quarters of the way through this sort of journal that's been describing like, Oh, and they came and, and took so-and-so today. And like, he came back and he didn't have an arm. And like, there's all this like kind of vague allusions to the nasty stuff that's been going on and whatnot. Mm-hmm. The paint pot that he has been using to like, he gets caught off guard and knocks over the paint pot and spills the paint. And he's like, Oh, well, I guess this is the last of it. And, and then like the next entry is, I woke up the next morning and there was a fresh pot of paint there. And the horror was like, no, keep writing because we want people to remember us too. And he's like, yeah. I'm not going to write anymore. Like that was <laughs> like, that's how it ended. And, and I, when my, um, I had a group that spent a little bit of time in par length and basically gave that handout to like the, the, the party wizard. Yes. who was the only one who could read Theron, which is what it was written in, and handed mm-hmm. it to him, and he read it, and I swear, the player went pale when he got towards <laughs> the end of it, and everybody else went, what, what? He's like, no, you don't want to know. He just handed the sheet back to me. He's like, no, you, you, got, you don't know. You're better off I'm not, not telling knowing. telling him that. No. No. Um, and that, oh, like, it's like, and like <clears throat> some of the stuff in the horrors book, there is some really, really, really good atmospheric, moody writing. Um, that just shows up throughout, and like that handout is an example uh, of of I one agree. of it. Just some some really creative, uh, like short story stuff. The and the characterizations of everybody in part length, and not to get off on a side topic too much, uh, were fantastic. I, I had my my group go to Vestrial and sign all of her contracts, and I literally printed up hundred contracts. Vertical, sorry, vertical. Yeah, Vestri- Vestrial is the Mad Passion. Thank you. I got stuck on Mad Passions when I okay. asked you that question. Uh, so yeah, I went to, went to um, her lore exchange and 
I literally printed up a hundred copies of those contracts and made my team, made all my players sign them in their own characters' names and just add nauseam. And so they got to be frustrated with her like you normally would just go, I'd have to sign another contract and the the whole thing. So the the characterizations of everybody in part length is fantastic. If you don't have the box set, because it's not in fourth edition, go get the box set off eBay somewhere or... Or or electronically. It exactly. is available in games. PDF with all of the handouts and everything else. Nice. Yes. Um, Fossygames.com. Uh, go there. But all means, yes. yes. So uh, that should cover the scourge. We'll get to the mad, pa- the passions going mad later on. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. We'll, we'll fit that in at, at some point. The, the actual first indications that they did was kind of early in the scourge. Um, mm-hmm. But, but we'll, we'll deal with that another time. Yeah, when we get to the passions. Uh, so about 45 minutes in or so, I think we've got time for one of our topics left. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll cover How about we just one. cover um, the general broad strokes of everybody's favorite part of Earth Dawn, combat. Well, I don't know that it's everybody's favorite part, but it is. If it's not, it should be. <laughs> kidding. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is a, like most fantasy role-playing games, it is a not insignificant portion uh, of, yes. of, the, of the game. Um, as I as I kind of describe it, it's the John Woo filmmaking aspect, which is everything goes in, in super speed and it's all quick cuts and fast motions and this and this and that. And the plots go over here. The dialogue's there. And then combat happens and everything slows down to slow motion. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I kind of look at combat and Earth Dawn in most games, actually. Um, so where do you want to start? Because it's kind of an all encompassing thing. Um, yeah. I have the combat options chart off the Game Master's screen we can use that a little bit later but i think the bare bones basics are this you have a talent based upon a attribute that you will use to roll mm-hmm. some dice try and hit somebody else's defense be it physical defense mystic defense or in some cases social defense right depending That's on what you're trying to do gist of it right there right and then you roll damage which is your weapon plus nine times out of ten your strength and then Take it away from the other person's armor, or the armor takes, yeah, hit them for a certain amount of damage. Their armor takes away from that. They may or may not get a wound, and if they do get a wound, they're therefore hindered on their actions and so forth and so on. So uh, it's the gentle whittling down, gentle, um, it's the destructive whittling down of someone else's uh, character or an NPC. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, sort of, sort of the, the general the general flow of combat. Kind of looking at it as as the combat round is is you start off. And the degree to which this has been emphasized or not in various editions has kind of shifted a little bit. But generally, the first thing that everybody does in a combat round is decide what it is that they're intending to do. Um, And in most cases, that's fairly simple. Um, There's not a lot of elaborate declarations that need to be made. Um, And and some people don't even really like having a declarations phase. Um, the, the primary reason that, that that is kept in fourth edition is because there are some combat options, some tactical choices that you can make, um, that would potentially affect what you roll for your initiative. And so those decisions need to be made before you roll initiative. If you're going to be doing, um, you know, an aggressive attack or a defensive stance or using talents that boost, you know, your initiative, uh, in tiger some way, spring, you know, tiger like spring, air dance, Cobra strike. There are some talents that, that mess around with initiative. And so yeah. at le- at minimum, those decisions maybe need to be made before you roll initiative. Um, yes. and you know, it's, it's, um, and, and even the, the initiative boosting talents generally 
you know, I don't have a problem with people deciding to use those when they are, you know, going to make their initiative roll. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, if, if I, I generally feel if you are going to be doing something that is going to affect your initiative, you need to decide that before you actually make the roll because, you know, no, Uh, yeah. Okay. I get that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, but, but generally like some, some additions, I think classic and, and maybe third to a certain extent was a little bit more formal, um, in their declarations and had penalties where if you changed what you did from what you declared, you had like, you had got a penalty to your, to your test or something. I'm, I'm not crazy about that. Um, like things are, are fiddly enough and it feels like kind of a penalty to people with lower initiative, lower average initiative scores, because they are mm-hmm. more likely to the, be the people that are affected by that um, over the, um, uh, you know, over the faster people who can, you know, get in and maybe strike down an enemy um, beforehand. So I, I I'm, you know, I, I'm yeah, not a you huge fan GM, of, go ahead. Yeah. You know, I mean, if, <laughs> if it works for your group and that's the way that you've been doing it, fine. You know, absolutely. It, it kind of changes the way that combat can flow. Um, if you are going to do something that formal, what you might want to do um, that I've seen some 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 people do, not necessarily in Earthdawn, but in some other games, is actually do those kind of declarations after initiative is rolled. And so once you know, like, what order people are going in, perhaps do declarations maybe in a reverse order. So the people that would be acting later in the round declare what they are going after first so that the people who have the higher initiatives can react to that. Um, you know, or not, but yeah, I just, the idea of, oh, because you rolled low and what you wanted to do is now no longer possible because of other stuff that has happened. Therefore you get penalized. Isn't having a low initiative kind of penalty enough? I agree. (laughs) It is, you know, in its own way. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, to kind of get back to the email, that's the reason why, while we didn't get rid of it entirely, we did try to de-emphasize the the de- declarations phase uh, of the combat round and if you can get things to work without even having it you know great uh, i just yeah, think there if, are a couple of options that can be chosen that that might affect your initiative and so therefore at least those should be decided or declared ahead of time and beyond that you know whatever yeah so if you've got most of your some of your some of your players don't even have an initiative boosting talent, yeah. then in that case, whatever. You I mean, know, the, basically you've got you've got depending on how you build them, warriors will have it. Swordmasters typically will have an initiative boosting talent in fourth edition. Um, uh, higher circles, you might see beastmasters with it because I think they might get access to Cobra Strike. Um, mm-hmm. They might also get access to um, to Tiger Spring because it's got an animal name. Um, yeah. You know, but but. Um, Archers, I think, probably do as well. Um, but like any kind of magician generally or, you know, non frontline combatant, you know, any kind of sort of support slash specialist type is probably going to yeah. have typically their their average dexterity um, rather than going than going first. Um, yeah. And so that's players, that's. Go ahead. One of my one of my players uh, sent me a video about a month and a half ago, right before we started our fourth edition campaign. <clears throat> uh, and he said. Uh, you know, this guy is doing a, a thing on D and D about yeah, get rid of your initiative. It's not it's not needed anymore. Uh, do a more cinematic style uh, combat storytelling. It moves a lot faster. And I'm like, yeah, but Earthon has initiative dependent talents, and yeah, really yeah. can't get rid of that here. I mean, I, I think one of the things that and I think Earthon combat is cinematic enough. 
Right. I mean that, that you don't need to whether whether something is cinematic largely depends on I know. like the amount of description and whatnot that the that the players in the GM kind of give it at the table. Mm-hmm. Um but but like one of the the popular like the fact that that D and D in its more recent iterations has gone to and Pathfinder does this as well, has basically gone to a um a, a cyclical initiative that is you make mm-hmm. one initiative role at the beginning of the combat and yeah. and then you, that determines the order and then when it gets through you go back to the top of the order and then go through so that everybody mm-hmm. basically gets turns in the same order yeah. um and and it that does in some ways make it kind of easy to like mark durations of stuff because it always like it goes into effect on somebody's turn and they have so many turns with it um and mm-hmm. it, but it affects everybody equally throughout the course of the round um, there have been discussions that I have seen come up with perhaps adapting Earth Dawn to a cyclical style initiative. And my big and I understand the desire to do that um, because rolling initiative every round can like that's an additional die roll. It can take up extra time and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But you would when you're looking at doing something like that, you need to figure out how the initiative boosting talents like tiger spring like air dance like cobra strike though that is less frequent because it's a it's a higher circle talent but but mm-hmm. air dance especially because how do, like air dance its special thing is if you actually roll high enough with it and you're going fast enough you get an extra attack and you need to like figure out how those talents are going to interact with a cyclical initiative mm-hmm. system um, yeah. There are some other like in- interesting initiative systems that I've seen out there that don't even like necessarily use a lot of dice. Um, like there's one that I've seen like where like it's determined who is like basically whoever speaks up first acts first in the first round. And then when their turn is done, they nominate either another player or a NPC to act next. And then that person goes and then they nominate somebody else. But you can't nominate another the somebody who's gone before until everybody else has gone once through and so what you can do with that is that you can like set up you know like oh well i'm gonna do this thing to set you up and i'm gonna nominate you next so you can take advantage of it and and do that sort of thing and that's kind of cool because then what happens is like oh great maybe you do set it up so that your entire group acts first and does all of their stuff but then all of the NPCs, all of the enemies maybe get the same kind of thing where they're all acting together before the, you know, it, it's, yeah. I don't know what, like I've run into that. I don't know offhand what game handles it. Um, but like there are some things like it, but yeah, the, the earth dawn initiative system has talents kind of baked into how it functions and mm-hmm. to make alterations to that would require a much more, broad-based reconceptualization of how some talents work. Yes. Not saying that it couldn't be done, but the, it would it would it would require a, a tearing things down to a much more basic foundation uh, than, yeah, than they We'll exist. save that for 6th edition because no, uh, uh, no, kidding. Um, the only other initiative system I've come across that might help kind of bridge the gap there is uh, the role-playing game Corporation by Brutal Games, uh, they have an initiative system which is where you roll it once for every single player, including the NPCs, and you only re-roll your initiative once the, air quotes, scene changes. So if the people move Mm -hmm. apart, if you're running away, or if you change the terrain, um, or a certain spell would alter the dramatic landscape, yes, 
reroll your initiative. Now the situation has changed, and then you play a couple more rounds, and then if it changes again, you roll initiative again at that time. So it would spread out the number of times you roll initiative to like once every three or four rounds versus once every single round. Yeah. So that might bridge the gap there. So yeah, that, that's that's an interesting idea. Um, so. so so then you know once once initiatives have been rolled, whether you're using the bonus talents or not, highest result acts first, and you count down from there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, highest, then next highest, then so forth, all the way down. Um, yeah. And, um, you know, basically when your count in the initiative comes up, you get to take uh, an action, or what's, what's called in the rules formally a standard action, mm-hmm. um, which is like your sort of your basic attack, um, you know, whether that's attacking with a sword or casting a spell or firing an arrow or anything else. And, and the talents in the game and the skills all indicate whether they are a standard action or not. Um, mm-hmm. And then you can take um, uh, free and or simple actions um, subject to the limits of, of, you know, whether other stuff has happened and game master uh, approval and things like that. Um, yes. Like, uh, you know, and and then for, for each action that you are making, you roll the dice for it. You make a test and mm-hmm. against the difficulty number and it's either succeeds or fails. If you are making an attack, like trying to hit somebody with your sword, then you roll your melee weapons against their physical defense, as you kind of alluded to earlier. And, yep. you know, based on the, the the success or failure of that, you may do damage. Damage is reduced by armor, um, and, and that goes there. Um, the one thing that I do kind of want to call out here, and it's talking about damage a little bit, yes. is the... Um, a lot of people who come to Earthdawn from a D&D mindset are used to having... Um, like hit points where you have a total and then each time you take damage, you subtract until you go down to zero. Mm-hmm. That's not really the way that it is designed to work in Earthdawn. The, 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 in Earthdawn, when you take damage, you actually are starting from zero and adding to it to determine what is your current damage. And that gets compared to your unconsciousness or death ratings to determine whether you are still on your feet or not. Yes. Um, and and it's, it's, it may seem like a semantic difference, but... It, it is kind of important in terms of how the rules are written and how things interact with each other. So but, I mean, that's, D&D you count down and Earthdawn you count up. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you can always, um, you know, complicate uh, things in combat with a, a few of the combat options. Um, there are a couple of different stances you can take. Um, aggressive attack, which uh, gives you bonuses to attack and damage, but at a penalty to your defense, so it makes you easier to hit. There's yep. defensive stance, which basically does the opposite, increases your physical defense rating, but gives you penalties to you know attack and damage because basically at that point you're, um, yeah, because uh, you're focused on um, you know not being hit. Um, yep. There's like attacking to knock down the enemy because being knocked down is is bad. That's a condition where you suffer penalties to your defense ratings and to your attack steps. And it takes basically your standard action in most cases to get up. Um, yeah, because you're prone on the ground. Because you're prone on the ground and it takes effort to, to get back up. Um, and um, so there, there's a, a bunch of, of stuff like that, even outside of the like purview of the various talents and abilities that that uh, characters can bring to bear in a combat situation. But I mean, you know, much like the kind of core mechanic, the basic flow of combat is fairly straightforward. And where things get interesting is in the interactions of various talents, both for a single character and among characters. Mm -hmm. Um, And those we'll dive into a little bit more as we start looking at um, 
you know, the various disciplines in a bit more depth. Yeah. And then uh, uh, the two other things about combat I want to bring up real quick. One of them is the secondary attacks. There's a whole slew of talents that provide you if your initiative is high enough or beats the other uh, beats your opponent's defense that you get a secondary attack yeah we mentioned yeah we mentioned air dance which is basically if your initiative total is in fourth edition 10 higher than your target Mm -hmm. um you you get um an additional you get an attack you basically get to attack your opponent again after they've taken their turn um and then of course you've got you know for the combat types you've got your second weapon so you can have a dual wielder you've got your second attack which allows you to make an additional attack with your primary weapon um and then when you get into really high circles you get stuff like claw frenzy or multi attack or multi shot where mm-hmm. it's possible to be making like you know not just 2 or 3 but perhaps 6 or 7 or 8 or 10 attacks in a single round um yeah get the, to those the flying the flying buzzsaw of the of the of the claw frenzy, um, <laughs> the windling with with claw frenzy. Um, yes. So you know, and and those are those are talents that come in later on as characters gain more experience and players gain more experience. I think one of yeah. the nice things about the way that that the discipline system works and the design of disciplines uh, is that you don't start off with a whole lot of super powered stuff right off. You start off with a smaller number of things that you get familiar with and you add on a couple more each time you gain a circle. Um, And then generally advancing through those first three or four circles is relatively quick. And that should give you like the 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 foundations of stuff. And then when you get into journeyman circles, you start really getting some impressive tricks and, and stuff. So there is a real like learning curve that goes along not only as the as the character develops, but also that the player has an opportunity to do along with that. Yes. Those are fun. Uh, and the last thing I need to bring up about combat is wounds. <clears throat> wounds, a, a nice ah, little, yes. A nice little wrinkle that I don't think a lot of other games come into a whole lot, uh, but I like the fact that wounds happen in Earth Dawn, and I've had a running debate with my with my players uh, since I've been running this game. Uh, I usually win the debate. Um, is that, because falling damage, if you fall, you can take more than one wound at a time. And yes, uh, yeah. So in some instances where we've had based on the old system, like the extraordinary success, uh, mm-hmm. I would always tack on. Yeah, you do more than one wound because if the wound yeah. threshold is like, say, eight and you do 24 points of damage. Yeah, that NPC or that other character is going to take a second wound or a third wound. So by but they, by, always, they, re- they refute me. Yeah, <laughs> with, with the with the rules as written. Unless the ability or power or whatever specifically indicates you will only do one wound regardless of how much actual damage you do if somebody has a a wound threshold of eight and you hit them with your sword and you roll really well and you roll 30 damage after their armor they Mm -hmm. still only take one wound i mean they're gonna be hurting because 30 points of damage is going to take a nice hefty chunk towards their unconsciousness or death rating totally but it's still only one wound there are some spells and abilities and so forth that specifically indicate that they cause multiple wounds or like the fourth edition version of pain causes the effect as if they had multiple wounds. Um, But unless otherwise noted one wound per hit. Now, when you start getting into those higher circles and the multiple attacks, each of those (laughs) attacks has the potential to generate a wound. So it is possible in those circumstances to cause more than one wound in a round to a target um, because you are doing multiple hits. Um, But like allowing by default 
multiple wounds from damage alone basically negates some of the higher circle powers that come into play, which yeah. specifically allow you to do that. Um, so that that's something to keep in mind. Um, one other thing to kind of talk about changes in in. So if you suffer a certain amount of damage or more from a single hit, that causes a wound and that wound basically for each wound, you have a penalty to your rolls. In previous editions, your first wound was free. You didn't have any penalty from the first wound that you suffered. You didn't start suffering penalties until you had your second and third and fourth. Okay. Mm -hmm. So to get that minus one penalty, you needed two wounds and so on. Yes. Um, the reason why it was changed in fourth edition, because in fourth go, edition Matthew. now you start, yeah, you start getting those penalties <laughs> right from the first wound is mainly because it's more intuitive. Basically, at that point, your penalty is the number of wounds that you have rather yes. than needing to remember, oh, you get one free, so you need to subtract one. It, mm -hmm. It's mainly much like I was kind of talking about with the, the legend points for karma. It's kind of a um, uh, kind of a bookkeeping thing. Keeping. It's an easier record keeping thing. Um, I know that there are several people who house rule back to the old way and, and have the first wound be free. That's fine if you want to do that. Um, and I also think that having the, the penalty show up right away also makes wounds a, a little bit nastier. Um, I, I mean, wounds are generally nasty to begin with, but having the penalty appear right away is, is you know, makes them a little bit less desirable, um, a little bit more nasty, and it promotes the use of armor a little bit more you know, with some of the other changes that we had made to try and make armor a little bit more desirable. So we had talked about yes. in the, the analysis of, of like defense ratings, people who have in theory, people who would have a lower to physical defense would want to have a higher, would want to wear more armor to make up for that. But a low physical mm -hmm. defense in previous editions was more likely to have its armor defeating hit, in which case your armor didn't count anything. <coughs> and so like these, these are sorts of the, the, like, what does a certain rule setup promote in terms of, like, build and play options for characters and, and having the, the one wound, like, the penalties right off the bat equal to the number of wounds, um, you know, I, I think makes them a little bit nastier. I agree. Not, not hugely so, because, you know, it, you, know, a one, you know, a minus one in penalty is not huge, but, uh, you know... It, it's it's a little bit of record keeping thing that I don't think makes a huge difference in terms of the 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 playability of the game, except that basically you don't want to get wounds. Yeah, because your your first wound takes away uh, one step on your attack and one step on your avoid blow if you have one, one step on your anticipate blow, one step mm -hmm. on any talents you're going to use or any skills right. you're going to use. So those minus ones begin to add up. If you're like, I need to dodge this, never mind, I can't because I'm down to, you know, I'm down a step lower. Right. By the time you have two wounds, you're like, I really don't want to get in the way of this shot anymore. I need to get out of this combat a little bit. So yeah, the wounds, as you said, stack up and they're pretty nasty when you get there. So yes, yep. avoid wounds at all costs. By healing potions, not boosters. Healing potions. Yeah. Healing, healing potions. Yeah, that's your <laughs> um, spend um, silver. Salve of closure is the other one, um, mm -hmm. because that's kind of a middle. It doesn't heal any actual damage, but it will automatically heal a wound. Uh, you know, some some stuff like that. There, are, I think uh, there's a, a questor. One of the, the the questor of Garland has a power that allows them to heal wounds, um, and there might be one or two. Excuse me. In other uh, in other places um, that do that, I think one of the Nethermancer spells. Um, 
like allows maybe it causes a wound and allows a, a recovery test without spending like without actually spending a recovery um i forget it's the the aspect of the the evil surgeon that's not the actual name of it but that's basically what it is there's a reason we wrote it all down in the books <laughs> yeah um but yeah so i mean that that's the that's the basic flow of combat and then once everybody has has taken their turn counting down to the initiative order then you mm-hmm. start a new round and everybody rolls a fresh initiative and and starts over it, it does make like can sometimes make tracking initiative or tracking durations of stuff a little bit uh, uh, annoying um because depending on how you handle it it's possible that if you do something like situation where like somebody gets knocked down at the like at the end of the round and then happens to roll well on their initiative and is able to get up before anybody can take advantage of it like mm-hmm. you can look at at some situations like that it, like what happened with old versions of the maneuver talent for example yes. um where if you acted late in the round you'd roll maneuver and then hopefully roll really well the next round and so you could have just a really short period of time with a with your other physical defense rating um to not get hit and stuff but you know generally speaking most durations now are measured towards the end of the round even if it ends up making them last a little bit longer um simply so that there is at least an opportunity at least once to take advantage of of an effect that uh, that might be there cool like uh acrobatic defense like acrobatic defense although that doesn't um yeah, the acrobatic defense, I think, is just good for the remainder of the round in the new version. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there are the things th- like that. But, like, I basically things either last until the end of the round or when we're talking about, like, spell effects and whatnot typically are until the end of the subsequent round. Usually if it's affecting, if you're using it on yourself, it will be until the end of the round. And if you're mm-hmm. using it on somebody else, it will be until the end of the next round just so that there will be a, an opportunity at least once to take advantage of that on somebody so yeah yeah because magicians don't always go first so <laughs> magicians usually don't go first <laughs> i was trying to be nice uh okay so anything else about combat because we have so we covered armor which is just a simple we, deduction so if you take yeah if you're wearing it's, it's hide, which has four points of physical and you take eight points of damage you take four points off your body right. takes four points that's it five, five points it. for for that's for hide armor but yeah sorry that's five. the I mean, like the the exact figures are not as important as the illustration of, you know, if yeah. you have four points of armor and you take eight, then you only actually take four damage. And that applies across the board. Um, we didn't mention um, extra success, like if you are doing a, a, a melee attack or a, a physical attack against someone, that the extra successes do additional damage by default. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about that a little bit in, in our discussion of the, the success levels last time. Um, yes. But that's, you know, basically the idea is if you roll really well on your attack, you end up doing more damage. Um, and that's each success is plus two steps. Plus right? two is the is the default extra damage on your basic gotcha. um, on your basic uh, attack. Um, there are some things that I would rewrite to make that a little bit clearer <laughs> um, in Fair. the player's guide if I could go back and do it again. Um, because well, that we have was the podcast five to clear years that ago. Up, so. Yeah, that was because that was that was five or six years ago now, and I've learned a lot about writing rules since then. Um, we have all learned a lot about writing rules since then. Letter of the based law, based on some of the, of the questions law. that come out, and and we like scratch our heads wondering how did they get that out of what we wrote, and just kind of shrugging and moving on. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's generally it. Like the, the basic concept is fairly straightforward. And once you get familiar with the system, it's actually possible to, to go through, um, a combat relatively quickly, especially if you have players that, that know their stuff and, and Mm -hmm. what to do. Um, combat we in fourth edition we have tried to have combat be something that is um a little bit um faster in the sense not necessarily of how fast each round plays out at the table um but more that you would typically have fewer rounds of combat that you would play um we 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 we've tried to avoid having like super high uh health totals for creatures um, so that the, the, so that enemies that monsters and stuff tend to go down a little bit more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to have, to have combat in that sense flow a little bit faster, um, because, and exploding dice can always turn the tables like remarkably. Um, you can think things are going well and, um, against, uh, you know, what, what might have otherwise been a fairly mundane encounter. They, you know, get a couple of explosions and suddenly one of your frontline fighters is on the ground um, bleeding from a nasty injury. Um, that one of the things and actually I think we'll close out with this. OK, so if if you are a GM running combat, um, keep in mind that player characters are subject to be the victims or targets of a lot more roles over the course of a game than any individual creature is because an individual creature or opponent typically will only show up in one or two combats. Whereas a player character shows up in every combat basically. (laughs) Um, And so generally speaking, it is a lot more likely that a player character is going to be the, the unfortunate victim of a bad run of exploding dice. Um, and that's fine. That's that's built into the game. That's part of the, the design. But that that issue gets compounded the more enemies you have in a single combat, basically, because the more rolls you make, the more likely odds are that something is going to explode. Yep. Um, and it also, you know, when like going up against a whole bunch of weaker opponents it also might I talked about this, I think, the other week with with like where we went up against a group of relatively low powered undead. Mm-hmm. And it still can take time to get through them all, even if you are a group of fifth or sixth circle you know, yes. characters. Um, and so a a a larger group of weaker opponents can still be a challenge just because, you know, of the odds of that one freak roll or a couple of freak rolls doing a, a like a really nasty um thing to uh to an individual player and and keep that in mind and that leads into discussions at the table of well how are we going to handle death at the table and like is is death on the table in every fight or is the gm maybe going to you know fudge things a little bit so that a player is not necessarily like cacked by effectively a, a random encounter in the woods like what is the the level of of danger of, of fatal danger that is going to be expected, uh, in the game. Um, and you know, that's again, one of those, like have everybody on the same page because yeah. I know people that really like the idea that with the exploding dice, you can have a character die at any moment, even against a, an, a, an encounter that otherwise should be a cakewalk. Um, 
and I know as well, and I'm more along this line, is I don't really like the idea of random death. I would much rather have death be something that is significant story-wise and has an impact on the story. Now, you can spin a random death to have an impact on the story. I'm not saying you can't do that, but that's just the, like... I don't know. That's it. That's a, that's a the personal style thing. And if everybody's on the same page, great. Um, but that's just something to keep in mind, especially for maybe newer earthed on GMs mm-hmm. is that, uh, you want to have, you know, you want to be careful when you're throwing large numbers of enemies against your player characters, because you're increasing the chance that you're going to have a freak role that you would either need to back off or whatever. Mm-hmm. Once they get high enough and they have enough money that they can have a last chance salve or two on their person. Yeah. You know, at that point, All you know, you can, off. you, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like that's sort of the, the, the broad combat advice that I, that I might advise there. Yeah, I, I, I have leaned toward random death at during any any combat is just not going to happen because I'm like, nah, they need mm-hmm. to survive this one to get to the to the big bad, whoever the big bad happens to be. Um, and so at that point, the big bad fights, yeah, all bets are off. If you survive, right. great. If you're dead, that's part of the story, and you get to make a new character and so forth. Uh, we did have one where. Uh, there was an offshoot adventure written called by the book and it appeared in like a shoddy magazine way back when, and it took place in the great library of troll. There was a horror in there called the unnamer. And the first thing he mm-hmm. did was he hit my troubadour in the throat. And that was a career defining thing because if the troubadour, I had him roll to see how well his, his wounds healed. And if he couldn't sing anymore, then he was going to need to change his profession. He was going to need to change his discipline. And luckily or not, he maintained it and he went on from there. But it was, it was the player was bereft. He was beside himself to go. I may have to change my entire character and I made him for this and so forth and so on. So it wasn't a death. It was a near death, but it was the first blow struck in that big, bad fight. So yeah, those are fun. (laughs) Death is, is such an, death is such an easy threat in some respects, mm-hmm. like I am much more of a fan of, of fates worse than death because, you know, when you're dead, you're beyond caring. It doesn't really matter anymore because you're yeah, dead. Yeah. You just make a new character. You're done. But yeah, but but with a when you have a character like at that point, the the the, the focus and the impact of the death becomes on those who are who are left behind. Yes. Um, but having characters that are, you know, that that get out of being dead you know, then kind of maybe need to deal with the consequences of that. And that's a whole, like we're starting to, to, to wander a little bit here. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll maybe kind of, we kind of circle that. back around to this at a, at another time. <laughs> that's a GM advice thing later on. Yeah. We'll get that one later on, uh, death and new character creation. Uh, okay. Aside from that, we've hit an hour and 15 or so hour and 20. We're getting there. We're getting there. Um, otherwise I do still want to thank Josh for making the time to do the podcast with me here. Uh, actually it was his idea. So I thank him for letting me do the podcast with you here and Mm -hmm. we'll go from there by all means, be active on the forums, uh, like share, subscribe, all the stuff that keeps the algorithms running, uh, contact us by all means with any other questions, especially about combat, combat questions are fun, uh, here at EDSG podcast at gmail.com. Final thoughts, Josh. Um, no, I think we've, we've kind of covered everything and I don't want to, uh, belabor the points anymore. Um, next time around, we will start getting into, um, disciplines. Uh, we're going to start next week. I think the plan is for air sailor. We will, uh, we will talk about them. 
and if you think it's alphabetical, you're, out, you're wrong. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, not completely alphabetical. Well, we talked about combat, so now next thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about a discipline that that is combat oriented, sort of, at least combat oriented it, yeah. to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, and um, and then we will, I think, um, kind of uh, we'll we'll maybe do a little bit more timeline stuff and um we'll kind of figure things out and go on from there yeah but don't hold us to that so uh otherwise folks thanks for listening uh now go make your own legend